I had the opportunity to talk to this woman who was vice president of operations for Anheuser-Busch. So she's the one who designs plants for how beer is made. And she said, engineers are incentivized to always like solve the problem. So anytime they see something not work, they're like, I'm going to go make that better so that doesn't break next time. And as somebody looking over the whole system, she says, don't do that. That's where it should fall apart first. Welcome back to Building Better Games. Today, we're hitting live service again, but focusing on one of its most critical components, technology. A few questions. Do you feel like it's really hard to get your hands on practical knowledge for running a live service? Do you hear people complaining about the technology and how it can't keep up with the needs of the live service? Do you wonder what a great system would look like, how it evolves, and what it takes to set it up? We've got you covered. Serge Kinestoutis, a veteran technologist who's had a crushing career leading teams in multiple industries, building cutting-edge tech, and managing a live service is here to share his experience and insight. He's just done this in the last couple of months, actually. We're going to walk you through the key components of building great live service technology and technology teams, what it means to learn your way through uncertainty as your product evolves, and how the way you think about problems will inevitably change when you orient towards live service. Serge, welcome. Thanks for thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Serge, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, where you're working, what's going on? Sure. I've spent basically my whole industry in tech. For the first 20 or so years, it was more software consulting and then SaaS types of industry. I always thought I wanted to run my own business, and that's kind of what I did for a long time. And about Five or six years ago, I switched over into the gaming industry. I'd done a lot of different other verticals. I spent four years at Riot Games, where I joined with a plus and minus. They hadn't shipped a game in 10 years, which was like a huge accomplishment for the league team, but also like they really wanted to get new games out there. And from my experience of consulting and maturing a platform, I helped them ship Legends of Terra, Team Fight Tactics, Wild Rift, and Valorant. From there, I then a year and a half ago switched over to uh, Singularity 6, where we were working on Paleo. It's a cozy MMO, so think about Animal Crossing or Stardew Valley, except with more of a multiplayer focus. I joined as, I think, employee 100 and with the goal to get to 200 in about a year, so just like massive scale for the organization. I had to come in and change a lot of the leadership expectations and sort of really just accelerate hiring. We have then, since launched, our closed beta started in early August, and we've been very fortunate to have a pretty successful launch. It's been pretty well received in the press, and I think like we've really found something special. We still have a ton of work to do, but that's kind of like why you make a live game, because you want to get it out to players, and then we can see what kind of updates they want in the game. Let's talk about what's going on for you right now, actually, because you're in the middle of it. I mean, you've done a ton of this kind of stuff across your career, but you're really in it right now. So the first question that I've been chomping at the bit to ask you is what feels particularly like resonant right now as like a learning or a reality of dealing with a live service and the uncertainty involved in dealing with a live service from a technology perspective right now? I think we've been pretty fortunate with the way the game is launched. We launched, I want to say about six or seven weeks ago. And it was a been a wild ride. We're now at that point where we have over a month of player data and we're trying to figure out what to do next, which really is going to inform what of our next big investments are in the game. And that's 
not an easy thing to do, especially for a studio that spent five years from the original inception of being internally focused and having conversations and being very collaborative. Now we have just like more information than we can handle. We've got all these social media forums. We have all this internal telemetry. We have everybody interpreting that data differently. So it's a muscle that we had planned for, but it's different switching from theoretical to actual and seeing, okay, now it's there. How do you normalize against it? How do you have different process people who are now informed? And like some people really think what Reddit is saying is important. Some people are saying what the player support is really important. Some people are looking at the telemetry and saying that's really important. And how do you distill it? So a lot of it is like accelerating decision-making and really like reckoning with results at this point. I love how you pulled that back to the idea of this is a change in how we make decisions. Mm -hmm. And there's this very real outcomes, good or bad, that now happen that there's just like a turnaround that we get on that. What's that cultural shift like? You know, I think it's actually gone pretty well. I mean, we have we have people from a lot of different backgrounds. There's certainly some people who come from just general tech, so they're used to constant updating and more of an agile approach. There's a lot of people who come from more box games, so they don't have a lot of experience about iterating and making changes. And then there's some that have done both and are used to this kind of updates. I expected more challenges or more conflicts, especially leading up to launch, where the people in tech are used to like, we need to update every couple of days and the people in box games don't understand the question. And so how do you have, those two groups are having a really hard time talking, but we're overwhelmed with data. So it's been this real fundamental shift. Now we get scored. We would have weekly play tests for like, since very early on with the game and we did multiple alphas with thousands of players. But in all those cases, you're saying, we really want to experiment with like, is this game mechanic working or is this idea working? And now it all matters. So like now quality matters, the support. So it's it's not just like you can't just sliver and say, well, this is what we're trying to learn from. It's like you can go in saying, this is what we want to experiment with this patch. We're going to roll out this new thing and see how players react. And they take an entirely different way than we expected or, or something we didn't think was significant in, in an update is what everyone is suddenly really passionate about in responses. You now have information, a certain amount of information coming in, whether you want it to or not. You have information coming in that you specifically wanted to come in so you could make decisions better. What does it really mean to design your breakers? What comes up for you? How do you think about setting up those breakers, instrumentation? Do people understand these things? Like, what would you want them to understand about how to build in that environment? Sure. So the light bulb moment for me was actually from somebody outside of tech. I had been operating a business that was getting like 8 million monthly users. It was like this very complicated, like websites, mobile apps, video streaming, like all this different tech. And as systems get more complicated, as you're continually iterating, nobody can have in one brain, like all the things that could go wrong. So anytime something happens, like you're looking all over the place and trying to grab all the people. And then I had the opportunity to talk to this woman who was, I think she was vice president of operations for Anheuser-Busch. So she's the one who designs plants for how beer is made. And so explaining how they think about the process, which is like, it's a very complicated chemical engineering process with numerous stages with tons of scale. And she said, engineers are incentivized to always like, 
solve the problem. So anytime they see something not work, they're like, I'm going to go make that better so that doesn't break next time. And as somebody looking over the whole system, she says, don't do that. Like figure out where the one or two places are that like, if your plant is about to break, that's where it should fall apart first. You like deliberately do not smooth everything out because all you're going to do is play whack-a-mole. If you make it better there, then you have no idea when things start to stress out that like this is where things are going to break. So it's really from a operational effectiveness perspective, you you start to look at like, okay, what is the most challenging part of our system to operate and understand and like get good run books and understand how to address it. But know that that's where it is because the the challenge of figuring out like with the million lines of code across all these different parts of the ecosystem, who wrote what code that is now causing it to break and what changed in the past two weeks is it really becomes really painful for a live operational organization to, to understand that. So you just like you paid somebody on call and it's not the thing that happened, broke last time, it's some other thing. And now you just like, well, page that person, page that person. It just like it becomes really hard to return to service quickly. So it's like I learned from beer makers, like place that weak spot at a specific point and make sure everything around it. And then like anytime anything outside of that breaks, you can invest in that. But like you, it allows you actually much more operational effectiveness that way. So that was a light bulb moment for me because it's like it's just these systems get so complicated. And when you start introducing all sorts of change, uh, anything I can do to reduce the complexity of operating that is just really powerful. Perfect. Thank you, Serge. I want to ask you, and then again, this might be too high level of a question, but I'm curious where your mind goes. When you think about at a high level strategically, like what the role is that technology and technology teams play in making sure that a live service operates really well, or ideally, like what are the things that come to mind to you? Like, how do you view that importance? So I think technology is just it is the enabler for great player experiences. And I think a lot of what I focus on is figuring out what we are going to do versus grab off the shelf. So like, do we want to build our own platform? Do we want to grab another login system? Like, what are we going to do that makes us special versus somebody else? And then once we start figuring out like what makes us unique, there's a lot of discussion about tech debt and agility and reuse and things like this. And, and, the way I think about it is you can err on one end, which creates a ton of deck debt, where you try to anticipate all of the scenarios you're going to have and try to plan out and build really long plans. And the reason that ends up creating tech debt is that you start to get feedback and you start need to change it. And then you've built this like ivory tower that's like, well, it's really hard to change because we anticipated all these ways we're going to reuse this in this way. And you've built a whole ton that then is very difficult and expensive to change. The other route is... You prototype quickly, you iterate, you get a whole lot of things out there, and then you realize, like, well, we never went back and made anything better. So now we're just like, it looks, our code looks like spaghetti. Our technology is completely interdependent. It's really brittle. You change one thing, and suddenly that changes elsewhere in the game. And so a lot of what I try to do is make sure teams really stay connected to design or product, depending on who's making a lot of the decisions for players, and really try to understand where are we trying to take this? understand where we're trying to go. So we're trying to like look down the road to see where things are headed, but realize like sometimes you're making little shifts and have to like focus on a little bit of reuse and little adjustments and going back and doing what you wrote one time. And now you understand how you want to reuse it versus like, sometimes it's little course corrections and sometimes it's like, oh, wow, we just, 
we built this as a prototype. This is now just going to unlock a ton of changes. We're going to have to really take a step back and, and make a turn. So to me, it's about navigating like that that road of where the, the game is going to go. That's how I think about it. Like it's much more of the extreme programming kind of thing, like trying to delay decisions whenever possible. Um, you will always know more in the future than you do today. So that's like that's how I really try to embrace technology. But ultimately, it's it's something. It's a it answers everything because it can be some how you think about game mechanics and reusing things. Sometimes it's about like asset pipelines or different ways that you're going to make every other people more effective with tools. You don't necessarily want to make the most efficient asset pipeline or tools, unless you're sure you're going to be doing a lot, a lot of times. So that's kind of like where any sort of these questions about where technology is, you want to make sure you're investing in something that's going to get a lot of return. And that's how I try to navigate those, those, those two anti-patterns that I see teams fall into. I've heard the more, for lack of a better phrase, like enlightened technologists that I've worked with in my career have often challenged the the common perspective of like, uh, if it's not built here, kind of, that you that you sometimes run into a lot. But what I really liked about what you just described is that that's a piece of it, is sort of being more discerning about whether you're willing to use an external tool or an external solution or not. Like, I think a lot of the technologists I respect the most lean into that. But the idea of delayed decision-making adds a, a new flavor to that discussion where you're like, it's not just about, hey, if we don't need to build this, we shouldn't. We should find an off-the-shelf solution. It's also, if we don't really understand what we need, we should delay the decision as long as possible to get as much information as possible so that if in the future we ever do decide to build something, we do so from a position of wisdom, basically. And I think that's that's a really cool perspective. <laughs> yeah, it's so much easier to go from the, like, I get 80% of the value from for 20% of the price of an off-the-shelf solution to building it internally. It is really hard to go to the opposite to say, well, we built this all bespoke tech and we realize yeah. it's actually not that different than PlayFab, so let's just look to standardize that. That's It's harder than the other direction, but also it's like the the morale hit is just terrible to say like, yeah. okay, all that work we're going to, you did, we're going to throw it away. So some of that is it, you will get better solutions. And I, I guess like, I also just think it's people feel like that's a failure mode. If you've outsourced and then you want to bring it back in house or that there's tech debt and now you see, you got to go back and do it. That's not the case. Like you just, it's part of like just general hygiene. You start cleaning things up, you start revisiting decisions. The thing that I've never really understood is in other spaces, like a, a game design or business strategy, you end up coming up with one idea, you test it, and you realize the players are over here instead. That's always taken as like, oh, now we've learned something new. This is great. But in technology, we beat ourselves up to say, oh, we built the wrong thing. We messed up. And we don't take this as a learning and, and like, okay, now we know more and let's let's go in that direction. The thing you said earlier really struck me. You have to assume that any code you write, you're going to rewrite. Mm -hmm. And... That makes so much sense to me when I've worked with engineering teams, when I've worked with art teams, they redraw everything. You redo the model, you redo the animation, right? All the stuff that we do, so much of the creative effort that we put into games is something that was redone. And simultaneously, I think so many attempt to hit that problem from that, well, if I do enough up front, then I'll only ever have to do it once. And that will save me time. You know, you've described a shift in thinking and a shift in culture, which 
you know, we're both familiar with, but again, it feels like part of the puzzle when we're talking about the things people need to wrap their heads around to really understand a live service. And you've talked about flexibility and adaptability, not just in the tech, but also in the culture. But when we're talking about the tech, the two things that come in, so I think about inspect and adapt. Like, what are the things that come up for you when you think about that inspect and adapt and kind of building that into the system? So I love data. The question I like to ask, though, is what decision will we do different with this data so we don't just try to grab every single bit of data? Because that either like... I love that. I mean, some of it is just it gets really expensive to capture all this data. So it's always a balancing act of like, let's try to collect more and more. I like to think about like, what do we do in terms of building kind of the, the pipes so we it's easy to tweak what we're collecting data on. But ultimately, these are should be stuff that is information that a team can turn into like a knowledgeable, informed action and do that in a data informed, not like purely data driven. Like we're not just going to do everything based on what the information tells us. We're going to like think about where we're going to go. But I do like to know, like, it's so tempting, I think, too, to just like say, look at all this cool data. I have no idea what I'm going to do differently with it. But it's like, isn't it so neat? I have all this information. So I like to bring it back in terms of like, what decision will be done differently? And then it also clarifies the audience. And that can definitely change like exactly how you're measuring the data as well. So you, you, data engineers are like fantastic at like collecting all this information and working with data scientists to kind of synthesize it into something. But it, it clarifies like what you're trying to capture. So that's what I think about with Inspect. I definitely think like it actually gets back to some we were talking about earlier about reuse where you don't want to just like capture every single possible event in the system. But you want to keep gradually like asking more questions and instrumenting more information and, and doing it. The one thing I don't think I do very well is that like turn off the spigots of data collection because like once you get like a really good set of data and a good decision made, like when do we turn that back off? And I think that's like I'm still kind of catching up on what are some of the data best practices about that? So, you know, yeah, we know now how we're going to think about this decision or that play mechanic. Maybe we don't need to keep looking at that. Maybe we can like be more additive and focus on stuff and, and turn some of this stuff off. There's a subtle principle there, I think, that I'm very attracted to and I'm appreciating that you're bringing it up, which is there's a difference between plugging a hole that you feel like you see in the live service or with the product versus building or extending the foundation of your product such that when new information comes in the, in the future that might be relevant, you can pick up on it and then react to it more quickly. Again, I think in practicality, it, the difference can feel subtle. What comes up for you there when you think about that kind of instrumentation? And do you feel like you have to talk to your engineering teams about this? And like, how do you build that into the culture, like the definition of done, that, that sort of thing? It's never as good as engineers want. Uh, so I, I try to like guide everybody towards being better. So for example, I think we have really good telemetry. I think our server side telemetry is top notch. I think some of our client side player focused telemetry is pretty good. Our logs are make a lot of my engineers cry because like everyone is just sort of like logging tons of information. So it's like billions of lines of logs mm. per hour, which is so much that it's completely unusable. So that's where it's like, some of this is just kind of like forcing function towards that middle of the road where it's like, okay, yes, that's great. That's bad. Let's try to like 
not get too frustrated or pointing fingers. Let's all just like try to get this area and, and like figure out how do we pick away at like a million log lines an hour. It's like, how do you start to tackle that problem? How do you get to where it's more useful information? So I, I think there's like, and the thing I think is probably why I give that example is it can vary tremendously depending on the part of the tech because sometimes yeah. like it's really, we actually, part of why we have such good information about the backend is because that's where the fuses. So like, that's where we really have a ton of information around that. And that's like, cause that kept breaking. That's where we kept getting better at that. But like the actual game server logs where it's like, there's thousands of them running and they're all collecting tons of data. The individual action on that is pretty difficult and it just requires this big collective effort to really make it better. So it's, it's an ongoing process. I think like we're trying to just get towards better as opposed to like, I mean, I do want us to have a better definition of done, Aaron, but at the same time, like it's never done. So that's where I'm like, I'm trying to just push us towards a better direction. And it's also like, it's challenging because sometimes you have to be really directive and say, no, this has to be better. This needs to be a point of emphasis. And now, and other times this needs to be a little bit more collaborative and open and like allow more of the improvements to happen organically. And that's, that's tough. And that's kind of the, the fun or hard part of running an organization is. I want to take a quick break from the podcast. Over the last few years, producers have been asking Aaron and I, what's my role? What are the skills I should develop? How do I advance in my career? Game production is in a rough state. We're launching a course to help. It's called Succeeding in Game Production, What You Weren't Taught. Early feedback from our beta testers has been overwhelmingly positive, so we're moving into early access. If that's of interest, check it out in the show notes or head to buildingbettergames.gg and click course. Thanks. Let's get back to the podcast. I feel like there's there's also, even with what you were saying earlier, you have to pick your poison and you can't pick no poison. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, like, well, what I want is everything to be perfect and we ship everything as soon as we can. Like, yeah, I want that too, right? But, but the reality is that, especially when it comes to game development, there is so much complexity in what's going on and what you learn and what the experiences you're trying to create are in the marketplace as it moves and shifts and other people produce games and player expectation shifts. And all of this has impacts on the technology. And I just, I think there's this ideal world we have where it's like, well, this, the world without any tech debt, where every system is just perfect. And I, I wonder if that is just this completely unrealistic fantasy that actually all it does is make us feel bitter and cynical about the fact that we do have some tech debt and not acknowledging that actually maybe the right thing was to accept some tech debt for the relative speed and learning we gained because it meant we got something out to players more rapidly. And to your point perhaps earlier about like the, you know, Aaron and I have talked about the road and two ditches, right? Like you've got the ditches on both sides of the road and you're trying to like weave your way on the road without falling into either ditch. But you have to recognize that they're there. They're on both sides. There is no perfect. The best you can do is try to stay between this. And and yet to seek perfection is to take infinite time. And I think it's more than that, because like a lot of my time is really focusing on empowering and giving context. If everything was perfect, there'd be no work to do. And you only have a game that's not changing at a live state if there's no players. Like, so you're, yeah. I mean, I think the ideal and the goal is to ultimately be perfect, but to realize, like, no, there's actually like hard problems to solve. So, like, how do you start to tackle that? How do you do it? And people like a challenge. They they want to have opportunity to like really make a meaningful impact and really demonstrate their problem solving skills. Certainly, engineers do, but like anybody likes to 
you want to make something better and you want to, you want to like leave your mark. So how do I pivot from, oh, this is really bad to, and sort of like learn helplessness to like, no, this is like, this is a problem. This is like what we got to solve. It's a subtle, but like to me, the entire difference between being effective or, or, you know, stuck. Serge, you have talked about uh, single points of failure and avoiding them, like de-spoffing. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? How has that worked out? I wish I had a silver bullet. To me, it's about trying to get multiple people looking at the same problem together and solving it collaboratively. I haven't seen documentation or perfect code or a lot of other kind of general ways that somebody can just like step into a situation and understand how something was solved and now suddenly they're able to be the spot. It's like the more you can get people working together to solve problems, that's really the way, like, cause it's not the solution that typically you need people to understand. It's like, what is the problem that they're trying to solve? And that is so often lost, like so often like the PRDs or the challenges of the day aren't around anymore. You just see the code and you see like, this is how it works. And so having somebody come over and see, see like after the fact they've joined the team and now this is the issue, there's no amount of reading that really gets them to a good space or, or talking about it. So I try to like, never was really a fan of pair programming, but like if we can get problems owned by teams or groups of individuals, and then they tackle it together to solve it, that's how I see solving a more sustainable approach to knowledge. There are more organic things like brown bag launches and cross training and other ways that you can give some expertise, but it usually is about what this problem was and how did we solve it. And that's why that code dash works that way. And please don't change it because like that's the type of problem that we need to have it solved. To me, it's about like solving it from a problem perspective. And one thing that live games give you is the opportunity to add a new problem to it. So it's not just a solved once situation and now you've missed it because it's been solved and it's never going to get edited. When a new requirement comes along or you want to make a pivot to how it is, make sure you grab somebody else so it's not just the same person who knows how it worked before. Add one or two people to that problem space so you can have that knowledge sharing and cross-training happen. I just feel like some of this is just like I was always a learner by doing as opposed to like visual or audio. And like I do think that that's like a very effective way to get people to just like do problem solving together in a space. I would love to hear from you about your thoughts on the kind of behaviorally what you like to see from teams when it comes to the live service. So, you know, a couple of things you've mentioned before are like, you know, stay focused on the players that that should be your sort of viewport is like looking at the players and seeing what they're doing. And another one is, is um, this idea of psychological safety, but like, how do you like to see engineering teams or teams behaving when it comes to like a live service ecosystem versus like box product? So I love working with product and design because I think they think a lot about where, where we're going to take the organization and in the game. So I emphasize with engineering teams that we have to have a good conversation with the other disciplines and really have that creative friction. So that's how I think we really get the most effectiveness of like, what do we want to achieve? What's feasible? What's cost effective? What's time bound? Like all those things are very different constraints that I think are just fascinating in game development. So first and foremost, I want to get this conversation really cross-discipline. With that, you really have to have 
psychological safety because you need everybody to be able to ask questions of each other for it's very different, especially with cross-discipline because people don't understand the other person's perspective. So you have to be able to challenge each other, ask questions, make assumptions. And then also from this, like you'll have very different perspectives receiving the player feedback very differently. So the designer will take it from one way the engineer will see like well that's because i wrote it this way the designer will say this is the the player type i was trying to make happy and so i'm not i'm disregarding that feedback the engineer's thinking well i ended up implementing it this way so that's how this feature works so you have a lot of different competing perspectives and i come back to like cross-discipline and psychological safety and finally in a live game being okay making changes and perhaps pushing the envelope of like what's comfortable I worry that teams who feel like they have to like serve some external non-player group end up in a situation where they're solving path problems or guessing at what somebody else wanted instead of just like going to the source and understanding like what it is. And players are going to have a million requests, but you have to figure out which are the ones that are most important to you. Every different discipline is going to receive this feedback differently from players and they're going to take a different approach. And I really want people making iterations, making guesses, making adjustments to what that is, and and seeing what resonates. And that is the luxury a live game affords. When we launched Palea, the first day we were saying, this is the worst version of Palea. Every two weeks it's going to get better, and we really want to keep making those changes. And not every single thousand of changes we're making, not every single one is going to be perfect. Another question I typically ask in a group is, what they think the problem is that their team is trying to solve. And if I can get more than 50% agreement that I think that they're all rowing in the same direction, if everyone sees a very different problem that they're trying to solve, I can see a team that's kind of rowing in his opposite directions and they're probably just sitting still. And then kind of, that's when I send up warning flags to start like digging in. Why are people talking past each other? Is it such a profound challenge that they don't know how to solve it? So that's another situation I use where I really try to figure out like, I'm okay if teams are struggling, if they all see the same problem and they're all trying to figure it out. And that's like why I often say psychological safety and these cross-tests and communications are what's important. But that's like my top leader technique to be able to spot, are they going in the same direction? Are they making progress? Are they iterating? Versus like kind of stuck and not sure how to prioritize. I love that. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the sort of key organizational components. So you talked a little bit about like, hey, these things are table stakes. Like, I, these are the things I'm looking for to sort of assess whether a studio or a game is ready to go mm -hmm. live or that we're going to have a functioning and healthy live service. Like, what are those, when you think about the organization, what are those things you, you look for that you keep an eye out for, the things you want to see? What are the table stakes? Sure. So this is more focused on the operational side of things, not necessarily like all the different disciplines. But for example, you got to have a release team you need to be thinking about how I'm going to ship updates, not just get that version of the game and then realize, wait, how do I update this? That's going to set you back tremendously. The second is a data team. And that can, at least some of what we were talking about earlier, making sure you're collecting all the insights, but also some of that muscle in terms of processing it. Community management, this is something where it becomes not just a way to make sure your players are happy and engaging and having fun events. They become a major part of like, helping you make product decisions around the game. And I think like personally for me, I think 
production ends up needing to be a little bit more product oriented because they become less about completing projects and more about reasoning about what decisions need to get made, what tests I'm going to make. So those are the areas that I find most critical, uh, kind of in just general ranking of what has to happen. So yeah, I think those are what I've seen as most effective in an organization and what you just need to have in place. So I have this thing that's in my head, and I don't know if it's right, and it varies by studio, and it's this idea that broadly, in my history of working in the game space, I on average see game dev sitting somewhere behind the forefront of tech, which is a darn shame because actually I think game dev has more need to be at the forefront than perhaps almost any other space that is based on software development. And around some of the things we're talking about, there's a set of practices, techniques, etc., that game development studios tend not to think about as much if they have a stronger background inbox product design. If you were talking to game dev studios and you were like, hey, it's going to take time to implement this. It's actually a cultural shift. It's a change in engineering leadership and how they think about the world. There's a lot that has to happen. This would be the one or two I would focus on that you're going to get the most bang for your buck around when it comes to your continued forward development if you were to try to make these changes. Like, what are the technical practices that you're like, this would be valuable to you. You should engage with these things. When we see like, oh my gosh, this is the the beautiful sort of holy grail of continuous integration or whatever, we tend to look towards enterprise software, I think, as an example, to mm-hmm. see systems that are really high functioning from that perspective. Like it feels like game companies in general or game studios in general prioritize these things less or understand them less or perhaps don't have the ability to do those things practically as much or whatever the reason is, I think that there's clearly like a a disconnect there. Ben and I, as non-experts in this space, tend to reflect back to the organizations that we work with in our consulting practice that that is one of the number one gaps that we see. So it's like, it's so important, so fundamental, yet we seem to not take it all that seriously comparatively. I'm one, what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So having come from general tech and moved into games, and even while I was in general tech, I worked a lot on creating tech for events. And so I see three very different styles to how tech gets built. So in a general tech sense, like tweaking Google search page or making a travel site or building an internal system, one of the core tenets in general enterprise tech is how fast can you iterate and how fast can changes on an engineer's computer appear in front of the customer. And it's this constant iteration and how many updates and, and it's something that doesn't make sense for games because you're not trying to like tweak the game every like multiple times a day the way you might do to enterprise tech. In events, you have like March Madness or the Super Bowl. You don't reschedule that. You know when something has to be done by, you do a little work back from there. And so you have kind of like, instead of an iteration approach, you still can use a lot of agile principles about how you make the technology effective, but de-scoping is your tool and you're constantly evaluating and getting information and getting accurate information to be able to make effective decisions towards there. Games is a third challenge where you're continually updating, but you're not trying to, 
increase efficiency of how quickly you update because you're really trying to create experiential moments for the players. And so for me, I think there's a lot to learn from general tech, but half of what you'll see in terms of enterprise best practices just doesn't apply because you're trying to optimize not for creating business value, but for creating amazing experiences. So it sounds trite, but I would always like just make sure you focus on the player first and foremost and be curious about what you want to do and, and iterate with those communities. I think that's challenging because you don't have a deadline and you don't have like measurable business value with every single iteration. And so you want to try to cluster your groups of changes together, but you want to do it based on informed player feedback that is subjective and quantifiable and, and just continue to iterate. Another thing, just to speak from a technology perspective, part of why enterprise tech is where it is, is it spent the past 30 years abstracting away annoyingly hard problems. So like Java came along and suddenly you could write code and it could run on many different operating systems. And then VMware and then Docker came along. So now I can run the same code on tens, hundreds, thousands, millions of computers. So generally enterprise tech has become more and more abstracted. So you can know just more focus on the individual business value. Meanwhile, games are trying to create unique experience that nobody has before. So like some of the exciting innovations in the past five years has been around VR or more engaging interaction or maybe augmented reality or MMOs. Like there's all sorts of new ways. And so I always like going to GDC because like you're always trying to push the edge and create new tech. And typically game engineers I know of are, are much deeper. They like know how something works on the GPU in a way that like if you go to Google, brilliant engineers, but they look much higher level at all the all of the challenges. So I feel like the game industry is much more dynamic and vibrant in terms of some of the technology that's getting built, which means it's never going to be as polished and out of the, out of the box. And your moments are going to be big beats that you're delivering to players instead of like, I'm going to achieve half a percent efficiency with this update. So I think that the objectives are fundamentally different and why like I think we should really do as much as we can to learn from these other disciplines but it's not a copy paste I think that there's like more inspired by what do we see in tech and what can we learn so how do you make games agile agile game development by Clinton is like one of the best books because he came from general tech he was at Boeing and then he tried to apply it to flight simulator and understand games have just a different set of constraints and I, I, we sort of use it as a book for like, how do we think about applying development practices here? And a lot of it translates, but it's not a one-to-one. And I think that's like some of the fun of actually figuring it out. And I think we are at the cutting edge of figuring out how do we do game development better? And yeah, your podcast is amazing. I really love hearing all the different ways that we're trying to learn because it is, it is much more dynamic. And I think like still on the, the cusp of what's possible in game development compared to enterprise tech. So thanks again, uh, Serge, for joining us. I want to quickly kind of summarize some of the key points we touched on in this conversation. There are three key areas we, we touched on when it comes to technology and live service and in really looking at the, the technical components specifically of managing a live service. And we broke those things down into tech, culture, and org. So for tech, um, decide what makes you special and invest there. Design your breakers, instrument around that. Don't fool yourself into believing things work all the time and every tech will eventually fail. And remember to cross-train and de-single point of failure your teams as much as you can. 
uh, for culture, prioritize players and get people thinking about players. Critical to create safety. And I think we're talking about psychological safety here on your team so that people can collaborate and talk about their concerns. Expect less crunch before launch. Expect more burnout once you go live and, and try to manage that as a leader and get ahead of that as much as you can and take care of people. Finally, for the org components, you know, your table stakes are your release team, your data group, thinking of community management more in terms of your product strategy, a key part of your product strategy muscle as opposed to just being the first line of defense against player complaints or whatever it is. And, you know, thinking about uh, being more product focused with production as the, the iterations you're doing are probably going to have more kind of uh, emergent uh, evolutions that are going out to the product on a regular basis. So that sounds great. Yeah, great. Serge, anything you want to plug before we wrap up? No, it's been a pleasure. Check me out on LinkedIn. Always interested in more conversations and continually learning. So if people have a conversation, just hit me up. It's been a lot of fun talking to you guys. Likewise, thank you so much. All right. Uh, if you enjoyed this content, feel free to sign up for the Building Better Games newsletter. That's at buildingbettergames.gg slash newsletter. Every two weeks, we will deliver one actionable step that will increase your chances of delivering a successful game straight to your inbox. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.